how do you how would you say do you have an I, I, some thoughts on how I'm introducing this? Um, maybe just you know catch up and to look into why it is I'm moving mm -hmm. and you know where I've been in terms of my you know because I think people have had a at times right like we talked about work being stressful and you know what's happened maybe with regards to that yeah and are we going to go into like what happened at work or what your thoughts about that service industry yeah absolutely okay. then here we go Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. We are online at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find the link to our blog in the episode notes. Please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications, and share your favorite episode wherever you found this episode. My name is Andy Lipson, and today we're joined by Kenny Zapeda, and we're missing Jessica and Eduardo. Um, Eduardo will be back, I think, next week. Jessica will be back next week. We believe Kenny will be here next week. But there's, like I said, there's gonna be a lot of changing characters because I think in two weeks I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be here. So, um, so today it's just me and Kenny. Um, and when Kenny and I talked a little bit about what would be worth discussing, and um, in the background to some of our, or rather, there's been, I think there's an interesting story to talk about Kenny, your work, and this is the work you've left in the service industry, the service industry in San Francisco. You had a long, a long experience at one place, um, and then you had a more recent experience at another place. But you had always said that there was a lot of stories to tell about that. And so today, I think it's about the service industry, the service industry in San Francisco, the service industry in a sanctuary city, the service industry under capitalism, and what, what it looks like in the inside. Um, I think that's kind of, and then what, where you're going now and what, what are your hopes for yourself and for your partner? And, and, uh, we'll just do a little catch up here. Sounds good. So I really do think we should start with what do you feel like is, well, what is it that most people might not know, you know, about the kind of work you were doing and maybe describe maybe in detail what, what you were doing and then what is it people might not know about that or go from there? Yeah. I mean, I, um, so I worked in the restaurant industry in San Francisco for 17 years. It's a pretty big like uh, industry in, uh, that sustains a lot of people. Um, and so I've done everything from, you know, busing tables to being a server and then becoming a manager. Um, and uh, also being a manager through the pandemic, right? And all those changes uh, that were happening and also seeing firsthand how a lot of people were affected, right? Uh, a lot of coworkers, um, the layoffs, the, you know, the scheming that a lot of businesses did to let go of some people and rehiring, rehiring people at minimum, minimum wage. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's like, uh, I don't know. It's it's a lot to cover uh, in the sense of, you know, I've always thought that there's a lot of hypocrisy in terms of, you know, for example, when we talk about a sanctuary city, you know, because uh, 
I think that is misleading. You know, it, 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 when, when you look in, into why and how the, the restaurant industry runs, and it's mainly because of undocumented work, <laughs> undocumented labor um, that is exploited. Um, and, and I think there is a lot of uh, racist, uh, racism uh, hidden uh, under this cloud of uh, being a progressive liberal city. Um, but, you know, it's as exploitative as, you know, any other industry, I think. Um, and, you know, it, 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 I, I am able to see that, right? Because like, I, I speak both languages, most an immigrant, I'm not, I've never been an undocumented immigrant. Actually, if you count me not working with um, a COVID vaccine, maybe that's, you know, that, that was maybe some proximity to, you know, to that because it threatened my livelihood. You know, I was afraid of being persecuted. So it definitely, uh, I think there's some comparisons to draw from there, but again, by and large, uh, this industry in San Francisco operates because of uh, undocumented labor and, and everyone knows it, you know, and, and, and I think there's uh, different layers of how racism manifests itself in, you know, not just in the wages, but in the positions and the expectations of certain workers over other workers. Um, but I think, uh, I mean, that's where I would start, you know, that what I, I was bringing up before, because uh, I think there is a lot of abuse, labor abuse, uh, that because of the nature of the work that is not really organized labor, there is no representation or way to push back as a collective. Um, the you know there's a lot of uh, practices that are just you know horrible and and it forces to do people a lot of horrible things like you know working two to three jobs you know renting a bed only and um and also a lot of you know dependencies uh, arise from this lifestyle you know just being in the industry and working so much uh, and also you know, just trying to make it in a city that's so brutal in terms of the cost of living. Um, but I don't know if you have any particular questions. Well, I wonder if it's worth first, I'm sure even before COVID, you mm -hmm. had um, some thoughts about this industry and you had some criticisms of it. Um, I do understand the notion, like, I think it's it's the idea that San Francisco so gives itself credit for being a sanctuary city and inviting immigrants in. But uh, as you're saying, it apparently invites immigrants in only to grind, you, grind them up in the places like the service industry. So who who's really, who's getting a favor done for them kind of thing. Um, and again, that's that liberal kind of um, uh, affect of like, hey, we're doing this because we love immigrants, but no, apparently these policies of sanctuary city just create a, a cohort of ex, of easily exploitable labor. Um, I guess the the question I would ask is: It worth first talking about the industry prior to COVID, um, in terms of, and then maybe the changes that you saw as a result of COVID? Yeah, I mean, um, I guess what I what I'll say is that you know that in San Francisco it, it's normal, for example, to hire people uh, part time, right? Every just about every restaurant job uh, hires people part-time. 
uh, people get paid the minimum wage and most of the money comes from tips, right? And um, and so generally the servers would make, bartenders would make the most, uh, the busters, runners, you know, front of the house staff would make them, you know, based on tips, right? Like they would distribute the tips, servers make the most. And so there's this hierarchy, right? And it worked different in different restaurants and I think there has been some shifts in regards to that and how people get paid. Uh, because technically, uh, your employers are not supposed to have a say on your on how tips get distributed. But increasingly, they've been using the tips as a lure to compensate for kitchen staff who basically, you know, they're, they were getting minimum wage and like working really hard jobs. Working in the kitchen is it's, it's intense. You know, you're working with heat, you're working with a lot of stress, you know, um, especially, you know, the higher up, you know, the higher end re restaurants. Um, but again, like, so tips is an important part of why people do the uh, join the service industry, uh, the restaurant industry. And so, again, you know, the kitchen usually wouldn't get any tips. Uh, but increasingly, you know, people are, um, there was a shortage, I think, prior to COVID of cooks. You know, there was be uh, people were being more selective as to what jobs they would pick, and so they couldn't just hire, you know, a uh, a cook. And and the other, I think, misconception is that you can just hire anybody, you know, and that is uh, not something that a lot of businesses can afford to train someone from zero. You know, they have to have some background. Um, but even despite some leverage on the side of the cooks, for example. Uh, restaurants can pay more than like 20 bucks. Like now you're starting to see some places that pay more, but that's nothing for San Francisco, right? $20. Mm -hmm. uh, and so they've compensated increasingly with- uh, You mean $20, you mean $20 an hour? $20 an hour from yeah. the, you know, the, the establishment. And then now they're using tips as a, you know, uh, extra income that they can use as a lure for, you know, more skilled cooks uh, or kitchen staff. You know, whether it's a prep person, uh, you know, pastry cooks, you know, saute, fry station. You know, a lot of these jobs are harder that not a lot of locals or Americans, you know, quote unquote American born people will do because it's hard work and low pay. And again, uh, but that whole tip situation has been shifting. Employers have, have more of a say on, on how that gets distributed, even though it doesn't come as a payment from the establishment. And that's also changed a little bit uh, through COVID, but I think that, um, I mean, that's something uh, that was, you know, that happened previous to COVID um, and, you know, increasingly to places were uh, trying to give health insurance to people. So there is like things like a city mandate where there's a per percentage charge to the uh, consumers. You know, like at one place it was 3.5, at another place it was 7%. It ranges between 3 and 7%, you know, and that's one way that, you know, a city mandate uh, forces, you know, a fee for consumers so they can afford health insurance for their employees. Um, but of course, all these things add up, right? Like when you go out as a, as a customer, uh, you, you're tipping and you're also paying 7% on health insurance. But these are things that... that local people have voted for, you know. Right. Uh, and again, just like uh, Obamacare, those mandates are mandates. Essentially, it's saying when you go to a restaurant, we're going to make sure that 
um, health health big healthcare companies get paid off a piece of that. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that that it's it's uh, they say it's about health about health for the workers, but really it's about a steady stream of, of and a continued stream of income for healthcare companies. Um, the one question I well, there's a few number of questions I have. First off, now in a lot of areas, a lot of cities, restaurant work is non-unionized. Um, so that in of itself um, creates a, a barrier towards the possibility of advancement. Um, and $20 an hour is not much. Like that's basically what the low-end paras made at Mission High School and San Francisco Unified. And that was, those people were not, those were like working poor, you know. Um, I mean, well, I understand that in Paris didn't get tips and things like that. Paris just got second and third jobs. Although I think it sounds like a similar thing would be happening in the food, in the food industry. So um, those folks who are making $20 an hour, that that's not a lot. Um, but is there a difference for a non-unionized worker in that industry? Who's, who's a, who's a citizen who's a, you know, who's got their papers and a person who's not, did that person experience have a different experience? Um, so a non-unionized person with papers and without, you said? Essentially, uh, yeah. No, I mean, um, so just to clarify, there is, you know, there are jobs that have union protection in the city, in the restaurant industry, right? There is bar a bartender's union. There is also like hotels have, um, you know, unions. Uh, but these jobs are far in between. The, the yeah. norm, like I would say like 90% of the, 95% of the jobs in the city are non-unionized. Yeah. So yes, you know that's where I've uh, worked at. You know, non-organized places, and uh, I, I, this is the stuff that kind of irritates me, right? When we talk about racism and discrimination, and like, you know, San Francisco being uh, less uh, backwards, right, than, than other places, because like when you, when I've talked to my coworkers who are undocumented, they they very like from different walks of life at different times, people that don't know each other often express to me. Uh, the the awareness of the racism that it is uh, demonstrated in the way they get paid, because people who are born here, people who speak better English, even though they're doing the same skill that doesn't require interaction or interfacing with customers, um, they often get paid less because you know it's just the way it is. You know, who, wait, who gets paid less? The people who don't have documents. Yeah. You know, and they are also. Um, expected you know to work two jobs you know so it's okay we can pay them you know 18 dollars an hour you know 71 dollar an hour um sorry uh one dollar difference right or and so yeah absolutely there is a difference you know i've seen in myself firsthand you know and i work for people who say they care and they do care to a degree but um you know the, the first people that get the shaft is the people that are most vulnerable and and often too it, they also face the least tolerance in the sense of they get reprimanded they get fired more quickly they're more disposable than, than people who who are born here mm -hmm. uh and you know it, it's it's true it happens and and there's just this expectation that immigrants work harder and, and i think it's implicit everywhere and you know that's what they're looking for you know Mexican workers in kitchens, you know, versus someone who was born here. Right. And I imagine since these are private companies, non-unionized, there's not like a 
a wage scale written down on a contract that says if you've been this many years. So basically all these negotiations of what you get paid coming in are made when you first get hired. And what you're what I think you're somewhat saying is when when that person is talking with the person that they know is undocumented, they kind of they tend to lower the starting salary, you know, so that when you end up speaking with your coworkers, you find out, wait a second, we're doing the same thing, but I'm getting paid one to two dollars an hour less. Yeah, there there is definitely differences. Um and I mean, there is another sector of, you know, like the the renowned restaurants, they also tend to hire um, people that are coming right out of uh, culinary school. So, you know, they have, so they have received some form of training. They may not be undocumented, but they still get exploited. And, and these restaurants know it. You know, they ab- absolutely go to, you know, culinary schools to recruit people so they can exploit paying them the minimum wage, uh, working them 10, 11 hours a day. Uh, and because, you know, these people who go to school uh, want to want to do this as a career, you know, so that's the carrot on that end, you know, for people who are documented and go to school, um, you know, oh, you'll work for this renowned chef and you can build your resume. Mm-hmm. And so these restaurants charging $50, $60 per plate are paying, you know, kids that went to two, two years to culinary school, they're paying them $16, $17, which is the minimum. You know, and 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 working ten hours a day, you know, right. and, and running those places like they're military operations, because a lot of chefs are, you know, it, it, it's a hierarchy, and they're 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 the dictator of the workplace. Yeah, you know, a lot of chefs are intimidated, and 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 there's all sorts of personalities, you know, and but yeah. And what about this that I've heard before about the front, the front versus the back of a of the restaurant industry, what's, what would you, what would you describe as the dynamic there? And again, we haven't gotten into COVID yet. So just, I mean, the dynamic is, there's always been a difference, you know, generally uh, the people who don't speak English work in the kitchen, you know, like the immigrant workers or the people who just got out of culinary school, you know, um, in, in the front of the house, that's where the money is at, you know, like if you really want to make money, you know, become a server. Um, until recently, because that's changing too, you know, how much money people are making, especially after COVID, but we'll get to that. Yeah. But generally, yeah, the front of the house makes more money. Um, you know, with tips, the, the average, the hourly is actually sometimes better than someone who is doing some office work. <laughs> you know, there are some restaurants, like in the high-end restaurants that you can make $100,000 serving tables, but you're also dealing with high-end BS, right? And And so... But there's a range, you know, because like, and I'm talking about table service because there's also counter service, like coffee shops, right? Like uh, those people don't make as much tips, you know, they, they, they take home very little. We're talking about like, you know, table service. Um, yeah. And you were, you were in that industry for quite some time. Could you describe what would you say your experience was with all these different um, characters and all these different uh, groupings? Um, how did you shift over time or what was your experience as in working in that? Cause clearly you saw it and you were aware of it. Maybe you experienced it. Um, but you know, you still were able to stick in the industry for quite some time. Yeah. I mean, I, again, I started from the bottom and I started busing tables, which is like you're in for the front of the house or the other ways you can be a dishwasher for the back of the house. That's kind of the end. Um, and so, yeah, I, I you know, I uh, I spoke English, but I didn't 
it took a while, right? Like it started in my early, late, like 18, 19 years old is when I started uh, working in the restaurant industry. Um, and I wasn't very, you know, at that time I had been in the country six years. So I wasn't aware of the, a lot of like cultural nuances that you need for service, right? Like if you want to be um, personable with, with customers, you know, um, and people tend to discriminate if you have a thicker accent. They do, you know, like I've yeah. literally had managers that have commented on someone's ability to speak English in order for them to advance into another position, right? So a lot of people get stuck, people who don't speak English get stuck just bussing tables for the rest of their restaurant career, you know, even though they have, you know, they're pretty proficient at times or they could learn, um, you know, through training. Uh, but generally there is discrimination. So I, um, I, I, it took a while for me to move from bussing tables into being a server because, you know, that requires, again, people skills, some wine knowledge, alcohol knowledge, and these things, this knowledge you build over time. Uh, and so, you know, you become a busser, runner, then a server. Uh, and I was a server for many years. I've been in the industry for 17 years. I bust tables that maybe for like six, seven years, uh, then served for another five, six years, and then became a manager uh, myself. Um, and, um, yeah, so, you know, I've actually gone through the ranks and a lot of managers don't tend to do that. A lot of managers come from, you know, just become a server and then they become a, a manager. And but they don't have the experience of having done every job, you know, that requires to operate a business. So so I have done everything. And, and I think it, it shows, you know, a lot of the people I work with uh, as a manager uh, love working with me because they know I will get in my hands dirty. They know that I have a sense of what happens on the floor. And also just, I think my approach to, to management, you know, like it's different than other management managers who are more like bosses. They're not leaders. You know, for me, I, I try to be a leader, you know, like I, sh I lead by example, uh, by hard work, by, you know, uh, just, uh, an honest approach to to doing work and as a collective, you know, um, and so, uh, you know, and that often you just have managers that uh, they're the hammer, you know, they're there to, right. to, you know, I guess, um, uh, punish or uh, boss people around or, or do the networking, you know, that's very part of the industry. Um, but for me, I'm about the work. I'm about like getting through a shift, you know, uh, getting getting through service, and you know, making sure that we're operating as a team because it's easier. It's a lot easier. Mm -hmm. And I've been fortunate to work in places where it's uh, it's a collective work because there are different models as to how restaurants operate. Uh, some, for example, pull the tips, and so everyone gets a, a percentage depending on your position. Um, and there are the old model used to be where everyone kept their tips. So servers were in charge of distributing tips to the bartender, to the support staff, which is a busser or a runner. Uh, but it was, you know, there was room for a lot of um, uh, subjectivity, right? And how that gets distributed and also competitiveness in, 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 in the workplace, right? Because you're competing against other servers. Yeah. And, but I think that model is kind of facing out. Uh, because I, it, 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 you know, 
it, it creates a lot of uh, issues among the staff. And um, that's another set of issues for the bosses to deal with, you know? And so more and more tips have been pulled and yeah. they get distributed. And this is where I, I was mentioning that the kitchen staff has been brought into this pool of money. And, but that also means that everyone else is making this. And so, uh, you know, by and large, I, I, at least the places I work that people are okay with doing this kind of stuff because they do realize that the kitchen staff works hard. Uh, but there has been, uh, I think for years, like a don't ask, don't tell type of situation in terms of yeah. the tips and sharing them with the kitchen. Um, but again, it's like, it does make a difference from the front of the house stuff in terms of how much money they're making and taking home. So these jobs, I think, are less and less profitable for servers and people people that are doing those jobs because the back of the house is making a couple of dollars more. Yeah. Um, a few. First of all, a question about your experience managing because, you know, for me, I I've always said I, I'm not sure I wouldn't be comfortable being a manager because inevitably, I'm going to have to tell somebody what to do. You know, and that's not a situation I wanted to necessarily find myself in. Um, were there times when you did have to like really be stern and really be kind of like, you know, a person basically saying, Hey, you're fucking up and da, 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 da. Did you ever have to face that? And how did you take that? How did you deal with that? Um, when you had to do something like that and was it, did yours or way it was different kind of thing? Yes. I mean, um, by and large, uh, I guess I've tried to create, I don't, I don't like to reprimand, you know, like I don't like to punish at the workplace. Uh, but but there are obligations, right, as a, as a co-worker yeah. but, uh, to be accountable for your part of the process. Um, and so, yes, I, I, I've had to confront people um, in, in the job where I was the manager the longest. Uh, and I worked there the longest, 13 years. I never wrote in anyone up. Mm. I never did. Well, actually, maybe maybe once, but um, I don't remember very well. But it was like a very extreme case. Yeah. Um, and so, but generally, it's like I would have a conversation with my coworkers and express them, like, you know, that's not okay. You know, you're letting people down. Like, like you know, fuck the business. Fuck the money. It's about your coworkers. Yeah. You know, where you're not showing up on time, where you're not doing your side work, where you're not, you know, picking up the slack someone else's because we are working in a, in a, in a, in a, in a very communal environment where everyone's producing something. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was my approach. Um, but I think also the post-pandemic things have changed. And like in this latest job, I did have to fire a couple of people. Yeah, were just completely not team oriented, uh, toxic, you know, to the environment, and you know, antagonistic to other coworkers, and you know, and I remember telling one of those people because this person was an excellent bar bartender, excellent. They knew their job, but their attitude was just you know completely antagonizing again, and like. It created a lot of conflict. And I was like, look, you, I, I think you know you're really good at your job. Uh, I, you know, but I don't think your attitude is compatible with this, with us, with here. Yeah. And, and so I've had to take those, uh, you know, where it's just, bef it's beyond being remedied, you know. Um, 
because like another part of my approach to management is like I don't have to like someone you know fair is fair that's something I learned from my mom who's also a supervisor like she will advocate for anybody you know regardless of her personal opinions or, or feelings about someone if a situation is not correct it's you know you still have to show up yeah you know, and be consistent and and that position if you're not going to abuse it you would need to be really fair like you're saying like otherwise you are going to be seen as partial to one person or one group of people than another um how comfortable were you in that role like personally to to let's even before the covid ones how comfortable were you having those one-on-one conversations that weren't about a written reprimand or some sort of reprimand but were like you know hey i need to talk to you was that something that was hard for you or you felt no this feels natural um I think it's, I've had to learn, you know, to exercise that voice, you know, where like, uh, and I, you know, there's still work for me to do on that end. Uh, but no, it wasn't easy. It wasn't comfortable. Um, not in that environment, right? Uh, in my personal life, I'm very <laughs> abrasive, very confrontational. Uh, but at work, you know, I have a different mode, uh, you know, in, I try to be less like emotional, you know, more like analyzing the situations. Um, and, but yeah, no, I've, I've had to learn, you know, to, to advocate, you know, for myself, you know, because like, uh, you know, I'm, as a manager, I still see myself as part of the team, you know? And, yeah. and so my job, you know, doesn't have to be harder because someone else doesn't want to, you know, be part of a team um and so yeah no it's i've been challenged in right yeah so another i do want to get to the covid part but one thing i also heard you talking about was sort of like the development profile of like so again in a unionized workplace you have a a seniority system like if you are more senior you are safer um you can even get tenure um you're not you're not completely bulletproof at that point, but you have a level of security um, that you didn't have if you hadn't had two or three years under your belt, or maybe five years sometimes. Um, and even year to year, as you get more involved, or as you're more involved with that job, your your wages go up and your your sense of security goes up, and it's regularized, right? Um, what I hear you saying is in in this non unionized workplace with with n- workers from this country and workers who don't have papers like you know who who are undocumented the there was there was various different profiles of the potential for advancement like there were some set of people who had a, a, a who had a pretty good you know going upwards and then you'd have another set of people maybe they're you know maybe they have their papers but there's you know spanish speaking and from and maybe originally not from the united states um, who have a maybe a, a less a less aggressive profile up towards advancement, and then you, like the undocumented could just kind of be stuck somewhere for quite some time. That's roughly the situation. Absolutely. I mean, you you see a very small uh, number of people that don't speak English very well, and you know, moving to uh, another position, you know, where the income is higher. It's absolutely rare. Maybe you see that in like Latino businesses, you know, um, 
where the majority of the workers are Latinos, but where there are other races and like people that were born here, absolutely you see the disparity. You know, it's like, it, it, it's night and day. I invite anybody to look into a kitchen in San Francisco, you know, even an Italian restaurant, a Thai restaurant, or, you know, a lot of, especially the more, um, the fancier places, you know, it's not an Italian person cooking your meal. It's not an Indian person <laughs> cooking your meal, you know, and, but even then, like, even in like the more, like the other, um, like cultural restaurants, like, you know, Indian restaurants, I know there is some other abusive stuff going there that I, that I, you know, where they have their own people, you know, their own labor, immigrant labor. Um, that I'm not even aware of, but I know there is some like exploitative things going on there too, and that are you know like bordering like slave work. Yeah. Um, and so, but yeah, no, there is there is there is a glass ceiling, I guess, uh, for a lot of people, um, and uh, it's a lot based on cultural differences, language differences, um, and yeah it's just like you, if you're again even customers people like are used to even me like you know i've been a manager and a lot of people just assume i'm just like the you know support staff you know like a busser or a runner um and yeah you know the, the, if you look a certain way they'll you know even as quote-unquote like woke san francisco is Right. It's a lot of assumptions and discrimination, you know. And is it just the fact so are the do do restaurants essentially have a headhunter who's finding these folks, or is it just the sanctuary status that sort of keeps a, a steady flow of people who are don't have documentation, who know that where the jobs are in that area. So there's just gonna be a steady stream of resumes that are gonna come your way if you're if you're hiring. You don't have to like you don't have to find a place that is like a day labor center that um, will will give you access to a bunch of people who don't have documents so that you have a pool to work from. Can you just kind of sit there as an employer and just they'll just come to you? Well, that's changed. Um, like I mentioned before COVID, there was already a sort of shortage of uh, some, um, you know, like back of the house staff, you know, like cooks, prep people, dishwashers. Uh, and so I think maybe five years ago, like the, the four or five years ago, employers could do that. They would sit and they can, could be selective about who they hired. Uh, now it's more, a more dire situation. I think uh, people have migrated out. Uh, and the, it's hard to find people with experience. Right. You know, to, um, because we keep, you know, there, there is still people coming to San Francisco, um, you know, and also there is competition right a lot of for example people that don't speak the language that i've noticed are doing things like uber or doordash you know because it doesn't require uh, a language really you know like yeah language skills or 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 cultural skills you know they just show a phone pick up the food drop the food off you know and the phone tells them where to go uh, so it doesn't require any sort of again experience or developed skills other than driving right. and so now um restaurants uh i know restaurants who struggle with finding a skilled uh real person because that that requires just like good knowledge on how to cook meat properly you know like a medium rare steak versus a medium well steak versus a medium steak 
you know, it, it, you can you can't just throw someone in the grill and, and expect them to produce those different temperatures. You know, it requires a lot of experience. Um, and so, again, there is a shortage now uh, of of good workers. And um, yeah, so that's why I find it funny when people talk about unskilled labor. You know, and I think that would fit in that. But uh, you know, just like I would, I would invite anybody that to the fields. You know, like oh, that's skilled unskilled labor. <laughs> you know, like yeah, crouch down and like picking things so fast. You know, like as fast as a machine or. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, but that's the same situation in the kitchens here. Uh, right now, there is a short shortage. Just to reiterate, uh, and so restaurants are not in that position of just uh, selecting people. Right, and so let's go to the, the the industry had all sorts of you know difficult things within it that you had kind of found a bit of a place in. You found your own advancement in it, and you were essentially seemingly like kind of doing the managing thing but in a way that was more attuned to your values and the way you you would have wanted to be managed yeah so then it then COVID hits what are some of the changes that you can that you can discuss or that you can share that that you saw as made kind of either well significant changes in the way the industry operated yeah so i mean COVID was very disruptive you know to say the least uh you know, I can speak, for example, about my brother, you know, uh, well, when COVID first hit, we're like, we're all losing our job. You know, yeah. a lot of us were like, we can apply for unemployment. So fire me, don't fire people who can't apply to unemployment. Um, and and just, so, to, just to reiterate though, that, and that was not mandate related. That's just the places are being said, you, you, you know, everything was being shut down. So mm-hmm. that's, that's the reason for that, at least at that point. Yeah. And so... Massive, masses of layoffs. You know, I remember like Instagram and some shit. Of, it's a bloodbath out there. Everyone's getting laid off. You know, like a lot of people. And actually, you know, a lot of places just reduce their workforce because um, they, um, again, you had to adapt. And like, for example, where I was working at the time, we became a counter service place. So we were doing deliv- deliveries or, and, you know, just uh, people would pick up food. And, uh, but that required a lot less personnel or, and also restaurants had to do it because they didn't know what was going to happen. Um, I think a lot of places did better than they did before, you know, uh, because they had less overhead, you know, with the personnel that they had to use. And the first months of the pandemic, people were very uh, supportive of businesses, you know, and, and uh, people were tipping very well. So a lot of the staff, you know, where I was working was doing okay, you know, but that also required, say, half the staff to be uh, laid off. Yeah. And the ones who stayed maybe did okay. Um, but yeah, a lot of people were just you know, idled and it took maybe like a year for things to stabilize to where people started returning. Um, because we had a couple of, in San Francisco, right, we had some of the most strict uh, uh, shutdowns. Um, we were we would open and close, open and close. We did that a, a few times uh, where we couldn't serve people inside. Now we can. Now we can't. And so there, we had to lay off some people again. <laughs> you know, post uh, uh, like the first wave of, of layoffs, we had to um, 
hire again, hire people again and let go. And in that process, there was a house cleaning, you know, a lot of people who people didn't like got, got let go, not on the basis of any uh, objective, you know, and, uh, plan, but a, a very subjective one. I know personally people who were laid off because someone didn't like them, you know, in management or ownership. Uh, I know also that in other places, um, like in, some, in the a well-known restaurant chain, uh, they fired everyone, people who had worked there for 10, 15 years and who had gained some sort of a, a raise, you know, maybe they were making $19 instead of 16, but they were fired and rehired at minimum wage, you know, despite the PPP loans that these business, businesses had gotten. And they actually used a lot of the money to uh, remodel or do some improvements to the business uh, rather than invested in, you know, in, in, in labor and, and right. so there are places that are doing better now. And as it turns out, actually, a lot of small businesses have closed. And the game is more and more big businesses uh, in the city or, uh, or, or uh, like investor groups. Right. Uh, the most successful businesses are investor groups now in the city. Yeah. And the thing to say about that, though, is like it was obvious to me that unions and workers were under attack when when there was issuing of mandates you've got to get the vax or you can't or you've got to take this pcr test um and i did it what was i was opposed to the lockdowns but in, in listening in some ways the locks the lockdowns themselves were anti-worker right and they 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 were the a, a weapon that the bosses could use to reshape their workplace and to use as an excuse to like i'm going to get rid of this set of people where I don't have to answer any, answer any questions. And in fact, I have an excuse to do it because I, it's just been handed to me by the capitalist class in the United States. Um, I mean, these are low level. These aren't, these are, I would describe some of these as just petty bourgeois, right? Owners, not capitalists, not, I think one of the definitions is you have to have 50 employees to be almost in that capitalist class or something like that. And so we're talking about some people who didn't fit that profile. Um, and what, what I think Marx called the middle class. Um, and or small level small low well not small level capitalists but just the middle class so um it's clear to me that the locked the lockdowns were also like anti-worker and pro-boss pro pro your employer as a tool for basically to give them against you yeah it, you know there was an incident with my brother so my brother had two jobs pre-pandemic and then he was let go of one of them and he was fired via text. A lot of people were fired via email, text. You know, there was no face-to-face. -face. And so he got paid his sick time. And, you know, he deposited the check. But because the bosses decided that, no, they were not going to pay sick time out, they withdrew the, the, the money from his account. Um, and so, yeah, that was just one of many, you know, situations. Um, and, yeah. Absolutely pro-boss, and there was a reshaping uh, in many places. Um, and I mean, you asked me about like what the changes, right? Post-pandemic. Well, but just to, you know, like again, when we talk about a left that embraces lockdowns, they yeah. are embracing a weapon against workers. You know, so right. that's and there are more changes. So please feel free to go. You know, because I just think it's like it's really worth underscoring because it's not just about 
mandates, which you may talk about here. I'm not sure. Yeah. You know, and like those lockdowns absolutely affected uh, undocumented workers the most. <laughs> you know, I, at the same time that I was doing this job, managing the, the, you know, the changes that were coming every week, every other week, I was organizing. That's when I was like uh, part of this group that was helping undocumented people uh, with basic things like food, rent, assistance. Uh, and by and large, this was, it was completely, it completely dispropor it, it disproportionately affected single mothers, you know, that were either, you know, like most of them were like either, you know, cleaners or restaurant workers that had to choose, you know, between staying home, doing the remote thing or going to work. And, you know, like, again, people who kept advocating for lockdowns who were supposedly pro-immigrant, pro-sanctuary city, you know, pro-workers, you know, anti-capitalist, you know, anti-conservative, right, anti-racist people, they, they had, they, there was no awareness of, of the damage that it was causing, you know, to the most vulnerable in our society, you know, and, and I think that, uh, you know, a, a lot of people were pushed into other predatory situations, right, like, uh, for example, I know people that were taking uh, payday lo loans, right, like, they, where they, they're charged like 20, 30 percent a month. For, you know, for the, the small loans that they had to do to meet, uh, you know, and these are people, right, and a lot of undocumented people that don't have access maybe to credit, you know, or things like that. So they would fall into the hands of these predatory characters in our communities. And, you know, I had a, a very interesting vantage point at the time because I was managing this restaurant feeding people the means, right? Because ordering out, ordering from DoorDash, you have to have fucking money. You know, like it, 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 it's not, I, I've never done that actually, maybe done it once in my life because it's a good markup, right? For the delivery yeah. of all this stuff. And, you know, and then on the other hand, I was doing organizing deliveries for people that were undocumented that were getting a, a, a bag of 20 to $30 uh, groceries, you know, which might last them two to three days, uh, you know, and this complete disparity and, you know, um, in that, uh, at the same time, you know, a lot of the people that once vaccine came into the, the picture, a lot of people that were hesitant to get vaccinated were these undocumented immigrant workers that already got screwed. Well, the people who work from home, you know, who who have the income to uh, to be able to keep buying food, right, on delivery, uh, were supporting and vilifying people who were resisting all this stuff. Or people who didn't stay home because a lot of people in the mission in San Francisco, which is the Latino community, the, you know, the working class, um, they, they, they couldn't stay home. A lot of people live in very precarious situations, right? Like you, 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 you taught some of those kids. Yeah. You know, I was one of those kids when I first moved into this country, I, I was living in one room with five people, another family in another room, another couple in another room, sharing one bathroom, one kitchen, and I'm supposed to be locked down and not, you know, without an income, you know? And then, you know, if I, has, if I resist getting a vaccine, I'm also a villain and I'm an ignorant backwards person probably, because, you know, that's the funny thing about San Francisco, you know, that to me is that there is just all this implicit, like racist, uh, classes, 
discriminatory ideas, you know, of, you know, having to educate people at the bottom or, or you know, like that the, the reason they're struggling is because they need more education, yeah. you know, more opportunities to the same system that's screwing them, that's allowing their fucking like, nights out, you know, uh, to happen, you know, the theater that happens in every fucking restaurant here, you know, where like there's, a, there's people who have, you know, who work 10, 12, 13, 14 hours a day cooking their food or, or also like pick cleaning their plates. You know, and, and again, and that goes into all other areas where it, it, the people want to just talk about the minimum wage, but there's also a, a fundamental lack of understanding of, for example, that business that I work for, you know, they're as good as a boss can be, <laughs> you know, like they, they, they are generous in many ways, but they still run a business and, and because they're not business minded, they're struggling every day. They're not, you know, they they don't see people as numbers as they have to in this system. So they're, they're struggling with shutting down every day. Yeah. And, and so the people that cut, you know, that don't have mercy, they're doing better. They're doing well, you know, and, and ironically, some of those people are, again, the, the people that fit the identity politics rubric, you yeah. know, like Latino immigrants, and, and they're as abusive to our people as any other boss, you know, who wants to make money. And yeah, you know, and like, never mind all the the hurdles that you know a small business has to do in order to stay competitive against you know the the big investment groups. Um, and so, what's happened? What's created is a situation where having a small business is just unsustainable more and more. Yeah. Um, and, and oh, go ahead. No, yeah, it just takes big money to have a restaurant in San Francisco. And not just that, though, but you have to be brutal to be to survive. If you want, if you want to do well, you can be brutal and still fail. But if you want to give yourself the best chance of surviving, yeah. you just got to be brutal. And that's, I think, for me, that that really describes capitalism, like the development, like of why the capitalist class is the way it is. Is in it is it is essentially the you know the the top tier people who have essentially been groomed to be the most brutal, the most profit oriented, the most, I don't care about humans, because the more you are like that, the more successful you will lead a business under capitalism. Um, and so I feel like your, your story for smaller businesses really speaks to how do we understand why big businesses are this way today? Um, it, it, it is, it's like an almost evolution, you know? Um, and, it if in order for that in order for them to be the most to be at the top they just have to like not care at all and and actually be willing to use people like chess pieces yeah i mean absolutely it's uh you know i um the the most successful restaurants absolutely are brutal you know and people kind of steer away from them now that there is a little more choice, right? I, I explained that there a lot of um, employers in the restaurant industry are not being as selective as they were five years ago. Yeah. Um, and and so, but in a lot of the workers, rightly so, stay away from you know the the fancier places, right? Because they're so dictatorial and so like uh, uh, about every little detail. 
you know, to create this illusion, right? This experience for the customers uh, that demand all these things. And, um, you know, like one of the reasons I tell my brother not to live where he's at is because it's like, I've seen the fancier places and they make as much money, maybe dealing with more bullshit, more dictations. Um, and, you know, and, and it also like really creates this, like this horrible mentality, you know, like I remember, so when I, I my last job, at, the, at one point I was working 10, 11, 12 hours a day. I was a manager, I'm salaried. And I remember venting with other people who have managed or who are managers. And their response was, that's just the way it is. You know, and, and so people find it normal to work 10 to 12 hours a day just because you're on salary, you know, and and there is, you know, no attempt to say that's, you know, that's fucked up and it needs to change. No, it's like, no, that's just the way it is. Just like put your head down and take it basically. Yeah. And, and it's sad, you know, it's sad because I also see people that are broken, you know, in terms of their mental, physical, spiritual, uh, self it's broken because there's you know they're enslaved right like it's it is slavery yeah rich slavery and and yes they're making they have sure money coming in but you know like that's why a lot of people actually stay away from management it's kind of a known thing <laughs> a lot of people stay away from management because it's super exploitative yeah um, because a server can make more money than a manager the, 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 but you have to choose between a server who can get cut, who can get fired, you know, who, if it's slow, you, you'll be sent home. So you may not make money that day. There's uncertainty. Or as a manager, you have a steady uh, stream of income, but you might have to work 10, 11 hours because you have to cut people. Yeah. And this was my impression for you, from you, Kenny, like, cause you were, you were in the industry, you were in that business for a long time, you know? So you, you were able to survive that grind. Um, but it, to me, the, my impression is once, not just went from lockdowns, and I remember that period of insecurity when you were talking about, is my place going to be open? Is it going to be shut down? And that kind of um, revolving door of open, closed, open, closed. And then what kind, how were they open? Were they open as almost like takeout business? Did they have in, in-house customers and things like that? Um, but what seemed to really change, in my impression, for you, your work, was when the stuff around mandates, yeah. when mandates hit. Um, so maybe can you talk about that? Talk about what you saw it did the industry, and would you agree that it, that that's where, all, in a sense, it was the straw that broke the camel's back, or was it the straw that broke the camel's back, or did it actually become decisively worse for you, so that you like, this is now I got to get out. Um, I again. It definitely added something to the fire, you know, like the, because uh, again, the first, I don't know how long it took for the vaccine to come into effect, like 10 months. Yeah. Right. So those first 10 months, I would say were characterized by we're in this together, you know, like, we're, right. and a lot of people were like, we'll take a risk, you know, and like, I guess we have to take a risk and people were concerned about the. The, you know, having to work and people with preconditions, you know, we're really afraid. Uh, but, you know, again, but this, again, we were governed by, we're in this together, you know, we're doing, you know, something. And then customers were also very supportive financially and also like frontline workers, you know, 
Yeah. Like, yay, you know, we did it 10 months, right? And like in that period, one person had COVID where I was working and, but it wasn't, you know, they were kind of concerned, but, but I think as, as time went on and the lockdowns or the, the, not the, the, the measures, right? Like social distancing, masking, uh, we're starting to wear off, I think. And once the vaccine came live, game over. That's when like the divisions became clear, you know, and uh, by and large, everyone that I was working with was taking, um, was, uh, took the vaccine. I was one of two people uh, that resisted. Um, and then um, there was some tension, you know, and, uh, that, that was created as a result. Uh, there was harassment. I, I can absolutely say that. If I had a, an objective HR person, that would be considered harassment uh, regarding, you know, not wanting to take that or, or being argumentative. Um, and there was more doubt inserted into being around each other. Uh, you know, it, it was kind of crazy to me because we had done this work for 10 months. <laughs> you know, no one here has died. No one here has lost anybody. You know, no one here is seeing anybody falling, you know, like how they're showing it on, on the on videos and, and stuff, you know, and but suddenly, because I don't want to take that, you know, because I, I you know, I'm aware of natural immunity and all this stuff, you know, or, you know, I've, I never put anything in my body. Like, that's how I operate. People know that, like, I don't drink ibuprofen until I have to, like, when really I can bear it. Like, I avoid taking medicines, but now I have to take it. You know, and I even had a conversation with the ownership at the time, you know, regarding my refusal. Um, and they gave me the arguments that were being given, you know, on, on TV. And, and but I stood my ground. I told them, look, you do what you have to do. I'll do what I have to do. And, you know, I, I gave my arguments and, you know, they knew that my politics were a little more radical. So they kind of dismissed me as, you know, Kenny doing his thing. Yeah. Even though they were praising me for doing this community work. And I even got the restaurant involved in some of that work, you know, to, and they got them good PR, you know, and, but then I was suddenly suspicious. I was the one carrying the virus. I was the one. And so it, 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 and it was constant, you know, like it was comments, customers, the customers became vicious when we reopened the outside area. I would hear the conversations that customers were having and basically wishing ill on people, you know, uh, you know, like sharing those, uh, you know, the propaganda of the repenting unvaccinated person, you know, on the deathbed, you know, and or showing how backwards people are, you know, and here I was one of the few people not vaccinated in this establishment and everyone else assumed that everyone was vaccinated and everyone would share into that, uh, you know, nasty views of people who refuse to take this stuff. And so all this stuff, like it was just, it just became more and more, um, detrimental you know to myself and i didn't feel comfortable i felt harassed constantly um everyone was vicious and i and quite honest even using their the covid uh policies to um you know excuse very anti-human behavior you know embrace his behavior to be honest 
you know, because like very, uh, and then like discrimination became legal because I, I remember when, when the when we were mandated to check the vaccines for to allow people to come inside, the majority I would say like a good chunk of the people were black who would come and not have that that in Latino black and Latino and not have their you know vaccination, but I, we had to refuse service, mm. you know, or indoor service for them. And so, in in here, I was in a city, right? That quickly responds to, um, you know, like the South, right? Those racist Southern people and their uh, ID voting laws, right? Like the voting ID laws to prohibit people from accessing voting. And here we are having people, you know, forcing people to have, uh, you know, a medical procedure that, you know, a forced medical procedure and show me their ID. You know, and, and so I'm like, in my mind, it's like so hypocritical. So that all this stuff just like deteriorated my my mental, emotional, you know, health. And I couldn't hang out with people that I was going hiking with for 10 months. Yeah. They suddenly became like coworkers too. Like we suddenly, you know, we suddenly had fundamental disagreements. Yeah. It's interesting because that in some ways that your your situation at your work is very similar to what I experienced when I was respected and people saw me as a person who could be trusted from my union organizing and you and your approach to managing was similar where you because I felt as a union organizer, even if there were a person who was a worker who was anti-union and who was against the union, if they were getting messed with, you protect them just like anybody, whether you're pro-union or not, because we're all part of the same team um, as workers. And uh, you so I, I feel like you had a similar experience where it literally in a very short part, in a six month period to a year period, an entire shift took place that you get perceived of as a completely different person. And I do remember like the year, the year that I ended up leaving San Francisco Unified, I remember walking around inside my um, room in my, inside my school feeling like I don't even, I don't feel like I belong. I feel like I'm going to get kicked out. Like, I feel like a stranger here. Um, I, 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 they, they don't have the basis yet to kick me out. And I could feel like there was more mandate-like things coming that were going to make it harder for me to really stay and get, give them the excuse to kick me out. But even before then, I felt like I was being ejected. Yeah, I mean, I didn't get kicked out, but, you know, I was being getting pushed out. And, yeah. you know, I remember that even in that period, I I asked for a race you know, because my hours were cut, you know, like, and so I was struggling financially, you know, like I never uh, qualified for unemployment. So I, I was stuck with uh, reduced hours, you know, and, and so as part of the, 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 as a condition of my race, it was proposed that I would take the vaccine and they would maybe give me a few hundred, few hundred dollar incentive, you know, and, and so the, by then I was like, fuck this. I, I, you know, as soon as I can, I need to go. But again, at the time, everyone else was doing that, you know? And so my options were zero, you know, like, or, or, or be unemployed or continue to deal with this bullshit. Yeah. You know, but, yeah. The irony is because you ended up, you know, um, taking the Johnson and Johnson shot to go to Canada to see your cousin. Um, and then it really wasn't too much longer after that that you left that work. Yeah, because uh, 
all these uh all this like again harassment the this like insulting you know offer of you know choosing you know like doing it for money as if i'm that stupid if, if they don't know me you know what i stand for you know and 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 so all that even my coworkers, i didn't feel like i belonged there you know like suddenly i became uh, again like i said a person that not to be trusted that i was you know irresponsible or immoral you know uh and so yeah i i, I had to find a way out you know and I did, and and so I went to another job that actually uh, masks. By that time, they were okay without masks because you know it, it opened, reopened after like most of the more restrictive policies were lifted, and so it felt freeing. You know, I was there, no mask, um, and you know it was also a different like demographic, or, like uh, a different like uh, customer base, uh, more. Uh, affluent customer base and so i also saw the difference there like people with money it's like they don't give a shit <laughs> a lot of people with money didn't give a shit about their kids being like, masked or or you know and by and large there's still a lot of people who are still living with that you know but uh, like uh psychosis i guess and <laughs> and they, but yeah but by and large there was a difference you know like right. Wealthier people, I was like, damn, you, you really are not as concerned. As you as you saw more wealthier clientele, there was less masking and less of the fear of the disease and things like that. Um, so your reasons for going to the next job were by and large to get out from behind these medical restrictions and to try to feel more free. And maybe, I imagine, with the idea of possibly rebuilding an idea like what you had had at the previous job which is you know trust and you know leading by example and things like that was that your goal and how did it end up going it was also financial you know so financial and those restrictions that they went hand in hand for me and you know i so i got there and um it, it was okay because it was a process we were reopening uh, you know, different services so that we were adding services, right? So it was just dinner, then we added lunch, then we added brunch. Uh, so we became a seven, sorry, um, all day, seven days a week place. Mm. So, um, and so it's a bigger staff. Uh, it's more attention to detail. Uh, it's more prestige, you know, of the restaurant. And so at first I was, you know, okay like i was like all right this is better <laughs> and but then little by little as things were getting added to my plate because we were opening more and more um i just became a slave to that work mm. you know and it was just expected you know um working 10 hours a day that was just the norm and if you had to work more that's good and not only that but like also dealing with People going out with COVID, right? And like, I, I didn't have like, people can just claim they had COVID. <laughs> yeah, and, you know, and like in a way, I was like, I get it for the workers, you know, like, right? You know, you take your time. Um, even though, like, for a worker in the restaurant industry, that means a loss of income because, like, again, most people are not employed full time, and you don't get sick time, you know. Um, 
And so, or sick time means getting just a minimum wage, not tips. Yeah. Uh, but still, people were cutting out. And so, dealing with the shortage of personnel, uh, dealing with um, more longer hours, more stress. Um, and it, it just continued to wear me down, you know, because uh, here I thought I was going to have a better quality of life. And also be in a better financial position but it wasn't true like financially i was like making on paper i was making way more but i wasn't seeing it because mm -hmm. i'm getting taxed you know and yeah. so uh whereas a server you know a lot of people do it because not all the income gets taxed and right. so um I just, every day I kept thinking, damn, I can make more money just serving, not having to deal with bullshit, managing people, sucking up to, you know, like irrational requests, you know, inconsiderate requests from customers, yeah. um, not having to deal with, you know, the the pressure from the top, from the numbers people, right, like the bosses. Um, so it, it, it was like the first half was good. And then I did make great connections with, with coworkers. You know, again, I was managed to to connect with people in a genuine way and like and talk shit about like what was wrong with things, you know. And um, but you know, my first like I think incentive to be there was financial, but I was like, I don't see it, <laughs> you know, you know, and and especially when I guess inflation starting to hit, it's like, yeah, it's just getting eaten up. And another thing that I started to hear more of were stories of your clientele, like, and, and yeah. there was something that was happening there for you, or at least that was creating an impression. I, I don't know if it was, well, you can tell me. Yeah. I mean, there was more people, more affluent people, you know, people more connected to the tech, tech, like direct tech stuff and tech capital. Uh, it was the irony as we were discussing things on this show, right? And and so yeah, absolutely. Like people who had no fucking qualms about dropping two thousand dollars in a dinner, you know, for four people, or you know, or buying a restaurant for thirty, forty thousand dollars, you know, and and also seeing like how much people of color are in these positions of, you know, of, of influence and power in this, in this world, right? That's like shaping everything that we're living under. And so it was very enlightening in that way, you know, that um, again, this whole like analogies of white privilege and white power, like are really off, they, they don't explain the world that I see, you know, in terms of, you know, who's pulling the strings and what kind of people are in, in positions of power. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, it's like a, it's a whole different world, you know, of seeing someone casually come in with like $600 shoes, you know, tennis shoes, you know, and $5,000 bags or jackets and things like that. Um, and again, People of all colors and races and, and nationalities, you know, play at the top there because they ha they may not be the the very very top, but they have very close proximity, you know, to 
to the ones pulling the strings. The the thing in identity politics will often say that if you if you have people of color in those positions, that they'll be less aggressive, less exploitative, and that clearly isn't your experience. No, I mean it's not. It hasn't for years, and like. I mean, I guess people can accuse me of confirmation bias, but I have confirmed it. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> yeah. Like, it's like, um, yeah, it's it, it's it doesn't explain the world that I that I see and live, and yeah, yeah. And I was gonna ask. Oh well, so what 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 was the breaking point here then for you being like, okay, now I'm done? Yeah. So. Um, for me, it's again, uh, you know, like I, I was in it for, I mean, financials was my, my, you know, part of it, um, but also just quality of life. You know, I, my mental health deteriorated even more. Yeah. You know, like uh, I was not as, I was more stressed out. It caused conflicts with my partner, you know, because I wasn't in a good mental health space. Um, in you know i don't react very well to super high stress uh, i don't think it, it's not normal i mean like yeah. and, and so it uh and also like again i thought the financial part was going to be significant you know to compensate and to, so i can do other things and it wasn't there not especially not in this city like you know i, I realized that in order to be okay here i'm gonna have to do things that i don't want to do Right. It probably got chewed up, like you said, by taxes, cost of living, and inflation. Yeah, you know, absolutely. You know, because I was not by any means having a luxurious life. Yeah. You know, uh, and again, just car payments, gas, food costs, rent, you know, uh, healthcare. Yeah. And there we go. And family, family obligations, I guess. Yeah. So, in light of these changes, like this this change point that with from lockdowns to mandates and all of these being places where greater control and greater control of workers can be exercised, um, looking back, looking at the service industry from prior to COVID, through COVID, and now at this point where it's kind of like it's not post because we're still in this nonsense, even though Biden said, "Oh, with the the mandate, the pandemic is over." Um, what do you, how would you describe the changes you're seeing in that area of industry? And I would, that's not the, those aren't the biggest food places. It's sort of like the, the, the middle tier businesses that exist in all these cities um, that are, you know, part of the food industry um, and part of like people go to eat there and they would entertain themselves. And uh, how would, how would you describe what's taking place in that industry as you look from prior to COVID to now? And then where do you see it going? I mean, technology, you know, that's technology is more inserted. Uh, you know, I can speak from my experience of managing that restaurant uh, during the shutdowns, reopenings, and because we were forced to do things we didn't want to do. Again, again, forced squares. Uh, we, we had to sign up for platforms like uh, for deliveries, um, delivery like Uber, DoorDash. I don't even know if we can say this here, but uh, those kind of services. And 
they take a chunk, you know, from the sales. Um, you know, I, I, for a lot of places, a lot of restaurants, especially the small ones, um, no one's getting rich there. That, that's a lie. Like, yeah, they're still exploiting people, but no one's getting rich there. Um, and the margin of profit is very small. And so once you sign up for um, the sale, you know, on Uber, Uber will take, at the time, there was like a citywide policy where you, they could only take max 15%. But then, you know, like afterwards, they started taking more percentage, up to 30% of the of the profit of the sales. But that, you know, and and again, the margin of profit is already small for in food. You know, alcohol is where the money is. And so, um, again, you have to sign up for all these if you want to stay relevant, if you want to sell, if you want to have some volume, and if you want to have, you know, just uh, publicity, right, to let people know that we're there. So that's one way, you know, like um, that uh, also the QR codes, they're everywhere now. You know, and I know there are some restaurants in the city now just using those QR codes and hiring less staff. So basically, and that's what I envision happening in the future. It's like, because again, with the minimum wage rises, healthcare, all this stuff, uh, small businesses are less profitable. And uh, so, and they also can't charge, you know, absurd amounts or people won't come to the restaurant. The clientele won't come. So you know, the pressures of the market, right? And and so, again, QR codes are allowing businesses to use less people on the floor, yeah. for example. And also the kitchens, like, it's just like any business cycle, right? Like capitalism, when when there is a crisis, you know, workers are, are they push more work into them. And so more work is being done by less people. And, you know, I think that's uh, in a lot of places, they've become more efficient at exploiting people in different, uh, especially in the production area, you know, like the kitchen, you know, like I know there are, for example, they're, they're quicker at cutting people, uh, you know, so that means people don't have an income and they, you may show up to work, but you may not have a full day's of work. Um, and so Again, those are some things that have changed like significantly. Also, the the hours of operation have changed a lot. Like, I think more people got used to ordering out, ordering in, I guess, than going out. Yeah. A lot of businesses are not operating at the uh, same hours that they were before. So, say for example, we were operating until 11 p.m. on Friday, Saturday, and so now the latest that we're opening is 9:30, 10. And there's like little to no life outside, um, you know, like uh, in San Francisco, you know, and, uh, you know, I, I think it's a factor of people moving out. Um, also, I think a lot of people age during the lockdowns, whatever, the two years, people had families, you know, and of the, the old customers, at least that I noticed. And so I think... Uh, for the smaller places, things are a little slimmer. You know, the margin of error is smaller. Uh, and um, like you see the groups thriving, you know, the, 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 the restaurant groups thriving more than the smaller ones. And uh, so you have, again, a more concentration of who owns restaurants in the city. And, you know, and it's, again, the people who are in those circles are the ones who network together. Um, and 
they all kind of know each other. <laughs> you know, like if you go to a fancy bakery, a fancy restaurant, the owners and managers all know each other. Yeah. To me, it sounds like it's an industry, at least at the level that where you worked with, where you know the owner and it looks like that whole layer, like what's been talked about during this period is the destruction of the middle class. It looks like that whole layer is just being erased slowly and being like piece by piece. They'd have to do these various things to survive, but each thing that they do to survive ensures that they're eventually going to be marked, walked off the stage. You know, it does look like an industry that will be left to only the big players. Yeah. And, you know, and I, I also wonder just because, um, you know, the, just the nature of socializing has changed. You know, like, again, um, people like younger, the younger people I notice are less sociable. Yeah. <laughs> it's like they're more in their phones, you know, and, yeah. and so going out to a bar is not as, uh, you know, enticing. Uh, and, for example, something that I think has gotten bigger and bigger is like those big, like, mass-produced, uh, what do you call, um, music festivals. Mm -hmm. like uh, outside lands and that's where the, a lot of the younger crowd uh is gravity gravitates towards uh and so these like pockets of like sub like undercurrents of culture right in san francisco they're they're dying out yeah you know like the the small jazz bar or that bar where they play you know this other music and and again everything's been homogenizing like a gentrified way and where it's not very welcoming you know to like you know people outside of that scene willing to spend a lot of money in the night out and so it's definitely like i think i think it's becoming less like accessible to more people so it's it's gonna cater more and more to like the house and yeah. the have nots you know you gotta really think hard if you want to order in you know from doordash right right um, and so what, like, I know you're, you're leaving San Francisco. What is it that you now hope for this next part? Like what, what informed your decision to leave San Francisco to go where you're going to Central Valley? Um, and what do you hope for yourself, um, as a result of this change in terms of what's next for you and maybe for you and Crystal or your partner? Yeah. So so Cristal and I have talked about this stuff and like one of the things that I think I want and I think we both want is just healing healing from this whole thing. Mm. It's whole um just it's you know, at one point I had so much community, I was so happy, you know, and but then the vaccine broke that apart and other things, you know, but um and you know, financially I'm in the worst shape that I've been in years, despite having a, the best paying job that I've had. Um, and, you know, also the city is just not the same for me. It's not, um, you know, I, I, I got, I went, came to the city in 1999, so, you know, 23 years, 22 years. And it's, it always felt like home. You know, but because I had things to come back to, right? Things that are good memories and, and, or places where I could potentially make good memories. But more and more, I just see the, 
the what do you call the you know the the ruins of it you know and, and they may not show uh the physically right because we're getting new buildings and all this mm-hmm. stuff but in terms of the quality of the people like a lot of people that i you know that i know have left you know a lot of people have left that i used to know um and you know also i'm increasingly just annoyed by the, the conversations that are had here you know that uh, like anything meaningful you know i even went to isla mujeres and someone who is from canada but lives there she told us that san franciscans that go there only talk about money <laughs> and so that, that and i'm like yeah that, that makes sense mm-hmm. you know and in technology you know and and so the for example i enjoy going to oakland more than san francisco because there's more substance in oakland yeah you know san francisco is kind of doesn't have a soul anymore to me yeah um and and plus i'm seeing all these technology just creeping in and 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 there is no little to no resistance really you know uh, and awareness of the the, the issues right that that will cause and and so i you know i have an opportunity to go and have a bigger house parking uh laundry in the unit that might seem like normal for a lot of people but for me it wasn't it hasn't been you know available in the city and that also takes time from your life it also adds stress to your life you know having to go do laundry for two to three hours and then come back and load you know go do groceries and again i just don't feel connected to the city anymore i yeah. uh, my family's still here but I really don't don't care for the restaurants. <laughs> I don't care for the bars. You know, I, I think I've also changed. I've also evolved through the, the pandemic, and I want other things. I want I want uh, barbecue. I want to be able to garden. I want to uh, maybe even be able to have some silence. You know, not not be stuck on traffic or or sit, like entitled people you know and arrogant people and you know people that don't look at you in the eyes or you know don't acknowledge your existence yeah um and be in that's something that i wanted to bring up that it's funny when i tell people where i'm moving to their first reaction is is, is a very like um judgmental attitude you know like as as if i'm going backwards you know and not mm-hmm. progressing right and and i'm actually happy because like i'm going back to basics and 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 you know like uh, i'm okay with just drinking a beer i don't have to have a 15 dollar cocktail <laughs> yeah and I, i think um you know there's all that stuff allison talks about smart cities and the prisons the cities are going to become that I think San Francisco is is at the front forefront of that because I think all cities are going to face what this is, including Oakland and including cities outside of California are going to face the kind of um, internal erosion that you're describing, um, and that there's no options and and things will get seg- segmented even more between the haves and the have-nots, um, and tech will be the intermediary for all of that. Um, so the So I think it's, I think we've had, we've, we've all had illusions and we've had illusions of culture here 
that I think have been um, increasingly stripped away for us or pieces taken out. And so the, now the building is collapsing so that, you know, I don't, I don't see anything particularly great about living in a city. Um, I think there's more problems in some ways for me when I think about living in a city than, than when I think about living in a place which is more spread out and more rural. Um, and many people have left, right? People are leaving. Um, and, you know, people talked about like, if this so-and-so politician gets elected, we'll leave. And, you know, I'll go to France, I'll go to Canada. And they never did. But whatever has happened here has forced um, people to really pick up and leave, you know. Um, so this is a real dislocation that's been take, that's taken place. Um, and I know it's interesting listening to you because I just feel like your industry, in the same way that my the education industry, is just being um, taken over piece by piece by tech, by the capitalist system. It's not going to be brick and mortar. It's not going to be humans. Um, it's just going to be a cold, naked city serving. I'm not even sure who's going to be left, but that's what it seems to be a vision of. Yeah, I mean, I don't. Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to be here for when those uh, cars that are already cruising the city without people, right? Like, yeah, when they start, uh, you know, like. Uh, enforcing parking meters when they start, you know, doing more and more of this, you know, policing and watching people every day, and, you know, and and also, you know, just like if we if people bother to have a conversation, like the other day, I had a conversation with a customer who, so I'm still picking up shifts, you know, in different places. I'm yeah. making ends meet right now, and this guy. Uh, he always buys a piece of chicken and we actually had a conversation. I'm like, I was like, Hey, how are you? Haven't heard from you in a while. And then we finally connected, right? Because I think the relationship was like mediated through the pandemic. So it was mask. It was like a shield. And now like no mask, we had a conversation face to face and he was telling me about his experience being an Uber driver and how he's increasingly made less money. And like he lives in his car and that he could afford a hotel at least once or twice a week before, but now he can't. So he's just sleeping in his car. Wow. And so, and then I asked him a question, you know, so what do you think about these automated, um, you know, cars? And then, you know, he's, he's a 50 plus year old, you know, black man. And, you know, he's like, I don't know, man, like this internet thing, it, it, it's like, it's a trap, you know, and then I agreed with him and then we started talking more. Um, and so, you know, he knows, you know, and, and I think that's going to be more, more of the experience, right? We've talked about this in the show that, and I think there is a mistake to think that only like the quote unquote low, low skill labor is going to, yeah, of course it's going to be the affected first, but it's coming after other industries that we can't even see. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, yes, like we, we talked in another show, right? We're going to be gig workers in the Pacific Standard Time. <laughs> and, you know, um, it's nothing new, right? Like the gig work, but, but it's more and more being mediated through technology. And that means there's a mediator, right? There's uh, channels of control and also 
straight up robbery, right? Like yeah. they're, they're taking more and more. Uh, they're doing it to businesses. They're doing it to workers, you know, and and so yeah, it's not it's not a recipe for you know anything good. And and at the same time, these same systems are systems of surveillance, right? And 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 so when we when there's a reaction to the emiseration, like I just wonder, you know, I just wonder uh, how we're gonna be ready because. The people that I used to once organize, what they're doing now is joining partnerships with fucking autonomous vehicles in the name of local like community, in the name of fucking people of color, you know, you know, self-serving and you know, while being advocates of immiseration, you know, of people like this guy who drives, right? Yeah. And whose industry, like, yes, Uber was disruptive to taxi drivers. You know, and, and now you're going to get the Waymo's, the cruises that are going to replace those. And, and so where do they go next? Yeah. You know, like two to three jobs, more, more gig work. You know, and, you know, like already people are working two two jobs, you know, like how sustainable yeah. is that? And and I see that again in the people that even the like some of the staff that I manage in this last restaurant, a lot of these people are completely broken. Mm. I mean, I don't mean that as a judgment or damn, more of as an observation. It's just like, damn, dude, they, they, this thing is doing, you know, people that haven't had healthcare in a while, you know, and they have, and they have an obvious illness that needs to be taken care of. People that have, you know, dependency issues with alcohol, drugs, you know, people struggling to pay rent, going check by check, you know, uh, just or just working you know, overtime because you know, that's the only way they can see someone, and. Again, it's like um, it, it's a big trap, and like I don't want to be around this. And it's not that I, you know, like I got tired. I'm tired. Like you know, I I've thought I've done my what I what I could, and you know, I don't know. Like I don't know if I'll be back to this city. Like I don't. But I can't see it. It I just mean, it's just I don't recognize it anymore. I don't. Yeah, I would not. I mean, look, you know, we haven't we haven't had a chance to get together and do a hike or anything like that. But I, I I'm glad for you. I'm glad you're making the decision to do this. Um, the the problems are going to exist everywhere, um, and but maybe you will find people that you can talk with about building something that you can preserve and building something that, like we we say, building something worth defending. Um, but like you said, I think people are either broken or, and I think taking the injection has had a piece of that, essentially agreeing to whatever the government told them to do out of fear. I mean, of course, there were the zealots who were just into it, but a lot of people were not into it, but felt like they had to go along to get along. And I think there's been a break. I think those people have been broken in a particular way. I, I'm, I'm not going to say they can't recover. Because I do believe it's possible to turn. I'm not only it's likely, but I think it's possible to turn this around if people fight back and people say, "No, we're not doing this anymore." But it, I, it, I think it's had a really there's so much so much layers of damage that it's done to people. And that's why I think it's for you to have a chance to refine and recenter yourself. I, I, I think this is not just it's a fortuitous opportunity. 
but I think it's I think it will be good for you. Yeah, I think so too. You know, it's yeah, and I I actually right now I am uh, underemployed. You know, I'm not fully employed, and uh, I'm the most relaxed I've been in a while. You know, yeah. and you know, you know that again, like you said. We're still living in a capitalist system where we have to sell our time for, for wages, right? And um, yeah, and so there will be problems anywhere. But uh, I think where I'm going, I'm definitely not gonna face the harassment, the accusations, the um, you know there is more connection because it's a more rural area. I think that I I I think somehow there is more connection to real life. <laughs> You know, and we'll, and, yeah, and we'll see. I mean, I think we'll come back to this, some of this yeah. stuff, and you can talk about what your experience is. Um, nevertheless, you can't stay where you are. That's the yeah. big thing. No, absolutely. There is no future for me here. Yeah. Like, yeah. there's literally like, you know, 22 years of working in this city. You know, my brother, my mother, working adults, right? And we could never buy a house here, yeah. for example, right? Or we can never afford to have more determination in how we live right um, and so, yeah and so yeah you know like this is like you said just gotta keep moving and and you know i'm happy to be doing this with cristal and you know like we're looking forward to planting some stuff maybe even having a dog <laughs> yes a- awesome that'll be fun and parking and like you know not not having to deal with like people that are stressed out and like they don't even know it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, is there anything else that you'd want to share about what we've talked like that I haven't touched on or I haven't asked about? You know, I just hope the people that are gonna stay behind, you know, like my friends, people that I care about, I just hope they're okay, you know, because like in, you know, like again, I don't have anything for sure on my end, but I just know this. I, this thing I do know. I don't know what's coming for me in the future, you know. But what I do know is that this pace of life, this trap that already exists here, is not sustainable for any human. And again, I'm talking about the people that are in the grind, right? The people that are well off, they don't care. They're not even aware, you know. But I, I, I'm talking about other people that are in the grind and we're supporting a lot of the bullshit that has made things even worse for us, you know? And so they're the ones that I hope they're okay, you know, and that, um, and I just hope they, they start asking more questions, you know, and and talking more shit with their coworkers, you know, and, and actually doing something together because I, that's the one thing I realized, like, and that's why I, I don't feel guilty, you know, like uh, I'm doing what I can when I can. And, and it's not just up to me, you know, like it was never just up to me to do, you know, to create community. And like, I'm trying to find another one because like, I don't have anything here. So I, I just hope that, you know, people can realize the importance of that, you know, of community for um, having a decent life, you know, like. We've crapped on liberals so much, like during these all these shows, um, about particularly around hypocrisy. And the city we've been talking about is San Francisco, right? The city that is supposedly so enlightened, so the city on the hill, so the city that 
is about workers' rights and about fighting racism, about progressiveness, and it's it's just an utter destructive grind that creates like zombies inside of it. Um, zombies of complete ignorance, liberal bliss, and 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 who's only the only if they can't they almost can't be accused of racism because they have these dreams of being anti-racist, of dreams of fighting or being against racism while they live in this ignorance of how much their own world just creates the the very problems they say that they don't want to perpetuate. Um, and then everyone else who lives underneath it, who's just getting pushed down deeper into the mud. Um, that's San Francisco. San Francisco is at the head. It seems New York city, New York city, I think is a, is a major area and, um, of liberal cities that are, where are like a, if you would imagine they would be a conservative dream. Like they would, you'd imagine they'd be a dream for a capitalist who said, I want to figure out how to screw people over really hard. And San Francisco says, we figured it out. You're welcome here, you know, because we have figured out how to destroy people and make you immensely wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, All with a progressive gloss. Yeah. It's, I mean, we railed against that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I don't know what's going to come of it, but. Um, I, I will just say this. I am glad to be out. And I, Oakland is going to be going the same way. I, I have, mm -hmm. you know, I think we're going to either fight it or we're going to have to go. Um, and we'll try to fight it. But if we're not successful, we will retreat, you know, because we have one life to live. And I want to have some level of satisfaction. I don't want to just, you know, feel like my nose is constantly being shoved into dirt. You know, I want to be able to feel like there's some kind of dignity to my life. Um, so we'll fight it if we can here. But if it turns out we can't build a community that wants to push back against it and things get even worse, we will go somewhere else as well. Yeah, I mean, that's the grind that, uh, at least for now, from now, it's just greener pastures, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. Uh, like, like you said, I'm not, we're not naive, you know, that. Uh, the problems are not going to follow us. <laughs> it's, like, it's the world that's going this way. And, yes. Yeah. And, um, but at least for now, like we need a little breathing room. Yep. Absolutely. Like, both Absolutely. and I have fought our bottle battles here. Yeah. You know, that have been unpopular with some people that again, claim to be about humans. Um, but again, We'll see where we're at, you know, and, and I think that's this is the time for me to like um, just heal and connect to life, you know, and to not be in this completely reactive, you know, uh, space. Yeah. Being bombarded. So, yeah. Well, let's, you know, see how things go and um, we'll come back to some of these things and see see what you're saying about your new situation. Yeah. Sure. Um, all right, Kenny, I think that's it today yeah um well thanks for sharing that and um there's a lot of interesting things i think particularly for me to think of the similar i didn't realize how similar our journey was in our in our areas of employment um and how similar i've i've been so talking about the end of brick and mortar schools that i haven't 
and I think that's coming and it is coming, you know, in the destruction of education as a place where you go and be in the same place with other humans. Um, I hadn't really thought, well, of course it's happening, but to hear a similar story in your industry as well. And I guess the, I will share this one thing that might seem gimmicky, but there is already in San Francisco, this, like, the technology is, is coming in the production of things, you know, like there is a, a, a bar that you can go and, and pay, like kind of like a vending machine, <laughs> your own beer. Uh, and now there is like a mission, like a, a, a machine that makes um, Middle Eastern food. Oh, fuck. That it was produced, but the machine, uh, the menu was created by a Michelin star chef, right? But, and with the excuse of bringing cheap meals to the people. Yeah. And again, it's like, there's also a machine in San Francisco that creates, that makes burgers, like completely, like, and so like, it seems like a novelty until it's not. And, yep. you know, it has repercussions. Yep. Yep. There you go. Fourth Industrial Revolution comes back around. Say hi. That's it then, folks. Um, thank you, Kenny. And uh, you'll be back next week? No, I'm in Mexico next week. Actually. Oh, okay. Okay. So then it will be Jessica and we'll see if it's Eduardo. Man, I don't know. This is hard to put these episodes together these weeks. All right. Um... That does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog at what-s-left.webnode.com. You can find past episodes of this podcast there and connect with us. I remind folks, if you like anything you heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, Rumble, YouTube, or Telegram. Uh, you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. And if you would like to give us feedback about something you heard or suggest for something else to cover, contact us through our blog. So that's it for a half, a reduced crew. Speaking of reduction in, in workforce, a reduced crew of what's left. It's me and Kenny. Um, we wish everyone, uh, you know, have a good week and we'll see you. Well, I'll see you next week and Kenny will be back in a few weeks.